We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 21 this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 303. Let me give you a couple of other things that I forgot to mention earlier before we jump into the scripture this morning. I meant to say as we prayed together that Pastor Ron and Kay obviously are not with us this morning. Uh, They are in Buffalo, New York at a denominational meeting gathering that's happening there in Buffalo, New York. And so if you want to pray for them, uh, they will be there until I, I think they'll get home Wednesday night this week. And so you can pray for Pastor Ron and Kay who are gone. And one other thing that I want to just, just clarify. If you have some time free this weekend, want to help at Bible school and come, you do not have to work with the preschoolers. We have other places. I'm, I'm being serious. We have lots of other places that you can work this week and, and and if you don't want to work with the preschoolers, we'll find someone who will and put you somewhere else. And so don't, don't feel like if you show up on one morning, I'm going to stick you with the four-year-olds because um, that's not necessarily the way it will work. But if you do want to come and help with preschoolers, we can help. We would enjoy that. Also, the other thing I want to say about that is, is if you're, if you're out and about this week and you don't have time to come all morning and help and, and that just doesn't work in your schedule, we understand that. But we would love to have you come and, and just see what happens during the week. So if you are just driving by or can drive by and pop in for 10 minutes and wander through the building and see what it looks like when 150 kids are here for Bible school during the week, I would love to have you come and to see that. We also have a picnic on Friday night this week at 5.30. As I mentioned earlier, we have a petting zoo from 5.30 to 6.30, and then the picnic will start at 6.30. And we want all of you to come back and to be a part of that picnic. Whether you have children in Bible school or not, we would love to have you come. We'll have a picnic out here on the church lawn, weather permitting, and uh, we will we'll eat together, and then we'll come here in the sanctuary and, and celebrate what God has done through the week in Bible school. And so we want you to come back and be a part of that that picnic. Um, the praying zoo is at 5.30, the picnic's at 6.30 on Friday night. So we hope that you can come and be a part of that with us. We are in 1 Kings chapter 21, as I mentioned this morning. We are What, what we're going to look at is just a, a story kind of in, inside of a larger story. Uh, this this passage for me comes out of a teaching time that I had with our clubhouse students this this winter. Uh, we walked through the story of Elijah and told all kinds of different stories of Elijah and how God worked through him and strengthened him. And this was one of the weeks in in the in the the messages that we talked about. And and I have to admit that as I read it and as I taught it to the students that week, uh, there was just all kinds of different light bulbs that went on for me in the ways that God used this passage to help me better see the gospel, to see better how God made a way for us to be made right with him, how God made a way for us to have a sacrifice so that we might be reconciled to him through his son. And so what I want to do this morning, especially before we come to the table and celebrate communion together, I want us just to look through this passage. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. You might want to take some more time and read through it and study the passages around it so you better understand the whole story uh, after you leave from here today. But I just want to take this one passage in the Old Testament, one maybe we gloss over a lot of times. Maybe as you've opened your Bible to, to 1 Kings 21 this morning, you're thinking, I don't really know the story of Naboth's vineyard. And so I just wanted to highlight it a little bit for you this morning so that you might have a better understanding how all of Scripture points towards Jesus from the beginning to the end. It's all about him and how God made a way for us to be reconciled. And so 
With that, we come to 1 Kings chapter 21. The king right now in 1 Kings is King Ahab. He has a wife named Jezebel. And they are the kings of the northern kingdom. At this point in, in the history of Israel, there's two kingdoms. The Israelites are in the northern kingdom. And Judah is the southern kingdom. Ahab is the king of the northern kingdom. He has a 22-year reign. And, and if you know your, your kings at all of the history of Israel, you know that Ahab was hands down the absolute worst, most godless king of all of them. He was the one that led, led the people astray more than anyone else. Um, Ahab was the worst king that Israel had as far as following and chasing after God. He was a strong king. He was powerful. His wife, um, Jezebel, she was even stronger. And we'll see that in this story. Um, they, they together were quite a pair and, and, and they led Israel way, way down the path towards idol worship, um, towards, towards, um, other, other, uh, worshiping other gods ex- except the one true God. She was a, she was a priestess from another country who came in and brought all kinds of Baal worship in with her. And it's a long story. You can read through that, that history in Kings. We don't have time to get into all that this morning. But Ahab was a really, really bad guy. And Elijah is the prophet of God who is his foil. Ahab is the bad guy. Elijah is the good guy. And Elijah has, has a number of occasions where he comes in and, and butts heads with Ahab and Jezebel. And some of those stories you know right off the top of your head. You know the, probably the story about how Elijah and, and comes to King Ahab and, and they have a showdown kind of on Mount Carmel where, where uh, the prophets of Baal try to get their God to light a fire under the sacrifice and, and nothing happens. And Elijah then calls out to his God that his God might make himself known known and light a sacrifice on fire. And in fact, a a flame comes out of the sky and burns up um, the sacrifice as well as the altar and and the rocks and the ground underneath the altar and the water that's around and and shows his power. And everyone knows that the one true God, Elijah's God, is the real God. They have battle after battle. And Elijah goes through where he has moments where he is strong and courageous and answers the call of God. And then he has a moment where he'll, where he'll say, I'm the only one that loves you, God, and I have to run for my life and hide. Elijah goes back and forth between those two positions. Elijah and Ahab, um, they, they battle over and over and over. In fact, in this story, you'll see that, that when, when Elijah finally shows up later in the story, Ahab says, Oh, Elijah, my old enemy, because they have had a battle. They have a relationship, a history together. So Elijah's God's chosen spokesman. Ahab is the king that leads them so far astray. And we come to this story. Ahab, Ahab in in 1 Kings chapter 21, um, is in Samaria. He's at his summer home. He's not at his main palace, but instead is at his his summer home in Samaria. And uh, we start with verse 1. Now Naboth was a Jezreelite. And he had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. So, the picture. Ahab, standing on his on his veranda, he's looking out over his kingdom, he's standing at his summer house, he's looking out and, and sees all that he owns... And then he sees this one little vineyard, one little part. It's connected to his. It's right next to his, but he doesn't own it. And it's a beautiful vineyard. Naboth takes good care of it. It's a beautiful vineyard. And Ahab says, I I, I have to have it. 
It has to be mine. And so he goes to Naboth and he says, you have a beautiful vineyard. I want it, not because I want it to be a vineyard, but because I want to make, I want to tear out all the vines and I want to put a vegetable garden right here. I think it will be perfect for me to make a vegetable garden. Several commentators, I don't want to extrapolate, extrapolate too far, but several commentators mentioned as I read through this portion that this is a perfect example, a perfect example of what Ahab would do and what we do in the picture of, of Israel over and over. God's promised land and his people are called uh, a, a vine. His people, his family is called a vine. And the, and the land of Israel is flowing with milk and honey and vineyards grow there where they don't grow in other parts of the world. And several commentators said that vegetable gardens were an Egyptian thing that would have come from another country. It would have, and, and Ahab wants to take out what God has chosen and made and instead put in something from another country. And, and it's the idea, the reason I, I mentioned it this morning is because that's exactly, that's exactly what all of our sinful hearts do. In fact, when Paul talks about it in Romans, he says that, that we exchange the truth of God for a lie. We worship created things rather than the creator. That's exactly what sin is for us and does in us. We don't want what God has. Instead, we exchange that truth for a lie and we want something else. Ahab, he wants to tear out a vineyard. He wants to put a vegetable garden in. And so he goes to Naboth and he says, you have this beautiful vineyard. I want to give you, I, I, I want it for myself, and, and so I will exchange. I'll give you another vineyard somewhere else that's not connected to my palace here. I'll give you another one. It's probably even a better vineyard. You can have that one. I just want, I'll make a trade. I want this one. And if you don't, if you aren't just interested in that, I'll give you everything that it's worth. I'll, I'll pay you money so that I might have your vineyard. And Naboth, he replies in verse 3, Naboth says to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father. This is, this is the only thing, this is the only thing that we hear Naboth say in this whole story, is this line, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance. Naboth doesn't say, um, no, nah, you know, I'm pretty fond of this land. I, 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 you know, if you gave me a little bit more money, maybe we could make it, he doesn't say any of that. He says, no, there's, there's a law that's already been set forth. God has promised this land to me. It was, it was my father's before me. It's mine now. And, and, and the law is set up so that we might always have a place to, to survive, a place to live, a place to, to grow things. And so uh, this land is, is for me. It's for my children. It's for my children's children. And that's the way that God set it up. As, as, as you read through the Old Testament and you read through the law, you see that God had promised this land, his chosen land to his chosen people. And Naboth says, no, the, the Lord has already set aside a law for this. It, that, that would go against the law that, that God has set forth. And so, I, I can't make that deal, Naboth says. The only thing he says in the whole story. In verse 4, Ahab then goes to his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth, the Jezreelite, has said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. So, just a note here, Ahab already in his mind has twisted what Naboth said. Naboth said, no, the Lord forbids me giving this to you. Ahab in his mind has heard Naboth say, I will not give you the inheritance of my father. See the twist there? Naboth says, God says, I can't do it. Ahab in his mind says, he just doesn't want to. Ahab has already missed the part about God's law. Ahab, for he, for he said to him, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And then Ahab lay down on his bed, turned away his face, and would eat no food. 
This is the part the kids loved when I told this story to them. Because Ahab is throwing a fit like a preschooler. He goes home, he lays down in his bed, he turns his face to the wall, and the people come to him, his servants come to him, and they say, oh, Ahab, it's time for you to eat food. He doesn't want any food. He's in a bad mood. If he was a little bit younger, he might pound his fist and kick and scream. Ahab wants the vineyard. Naboth has said no, and Ahab is throwing a preschool-like fit. And then we see Jezreel. Jezebel, sorry, Jezebel in verse 5. Jezebel, his wife, comes in, and she is a piece of work, if you know anything about this story in Kings. Jezebel, though, shows up in verse 5. His wife comes to him, and she says to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and I said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, look at his answer again. Ahab says, He answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Once again, not exactly what Naboth said, but how, Naboth, how Ahab heard it. And Jezebel, in verse 7, his wife says to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise, eat bread, let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So Jezebel comes, his wife comes, and she says, Why, why Ahab, are you throwing a fit in here? Why are the servants coming to get me and telling me that you won't eat? What, what is going on? And so he tells her the story. I want this field. Naboth has it. Uh, He won't give it to me. He won't sell it to me. He won't trade it for anything else. Um, Naboth is being mean, and I'm mad at him. That's basically what Ahab is saying. And I'm throwing a fit because of it. And so Ahab, Ahab is throwing a fit. Jezreel, Jezreel, she is a strong woman. She, as I said, she is a piece of work. She turns to Ahab, and I think if you can read in here the sarcasm As she begins to say it, she says to Ahab, don't you govern Israel? Aren't you the king? Go get your land. This is, this is, you're the king, you're the boss. You need to just go do it. She's, she's kind of chastising him, making fun of him, saying, Ahab, this is your land. You need, you're the king, you're in charge. You go take what's yours. And then she says, ah, just sit down. I'll figure out a plan. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to get you this land that you want. And so that's what we find that she does. It says then in verse 8, she wrote letters in Ahab's name and she seals them with his seal. She sent letters to the elders and to the leaders and who lived in Naboth in the city. And she wrote the letter. Just let me get back up. This is just an interesting sidelight again that I haven't explored real deeply in my mind. But, but Naboth, he, he's, he, or, or Ahab, excuse me, Ahab, He's the one that wants the land. He's the one that's throwing the fit. Jezebel decides, I'm just going to do it for you. And, what, and, and what's Ahab's response? Nothing. <laughs> he doesn't respond at all. Because Ahab, in, in his sin, is, just sits passively back and lets Jezebel do exactly what she concocts in her own mind to do. Um, he doesn't slow her down. He, doesn't, he, doesn't, he, just, he just sits back and lets it happen. Which is exactly, as I, again, I don't want to go too far into this, but this is exactly over and over through Scripture we see um, one of the sins that God has put into, into men is a passivity that, that does not step up and does not make things right, but instead just sits back, lets things happen, and there's a downward spiral that continues to go. Um, it happened at the very beginning. We'll talk about that in just a moment. It happened at the very beginning with Adam, and it continues to happen today all through a lot, the lives of men, including my own, where we see a passivity um, that God needs to help. 
So, Ahab is passive. She writes letters in Ahab's name. And then in verse 9, she writes in the letters, Proclaim a fast. Set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. And then, take him out to stone him to death. So she writes a letter, she sends it to the leader, she says, she says, we're gonna, we're gonna use a ruse of religion, we're going to, to make this look like a religious fasting ceremony, um, and we're gonna have two worthless men, she, she writes out in the letter, come and, and bring a charge against him. He's not going to be able to stand up against it. It will be a charge for the death penalty. You'll take him outside the city and you'll stone him. And so we read on in verse 11. The men of the city, the elders and leaders who live in the city, they did just as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast. They set Naboth at the head of the, head of the table and then two worthless men come in, sit opposite him, and the worthless men bring a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. The plan that she sets out in her letter is exactly what they do. An interesting note here again is that there are two worthless men. They're not ever mentioned. They're not ever named. We don't know anything about them except that everyone must have known they were worthless. They, When she wrote, find two worthless men, these two guys were the ones tagged for the job. She finds two worthless men, they come, they make an accusation against Naboth exactly like she has. And if, you're, if you know the story that, that Elijah has butted heads with Ahab and God has called him to do all, at this point, at this point in the story, you have to think Elijah is going to come in, he's, he's going he's to come in and he's going to be clothed in, in, his, in his animal furs and he's going to have honey in one hand and a staff in the other and he's going to run in and he's going to, to uh, save the day, he's going to rescue Naboth and everything will be fine because an innocent man is about to be put to death because a bully, because the king wants his land. And so as you're reading the story, you have to be thinking, at least I was thinking, when does Elijah show up? When does Elijah come and save the day? I'm missing one part of my message there. That would have been bad news. When does Elijah come and save the day? And then we read on in verse 13. So they take Naboth out of the city and they stone him to death with stones. And then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned, he's dead. And as soon as Jezebel hears that Naboth had been stoned to dead, stoned and was dead, Jezebel says to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is alive, is not alive, but is dead. There is no rescue. Elijah doesn't come charging in to confront Ahab and Jezebel and to make things right. There's no, there's no last minute saving here. Naboth, the one who owns the beautiful vineyard that's right next to Ahab's land, the one who says, I can't give you this land because it's against God's law and God's rule and he does not have a provision set forth for that. Naboth, the innocent one, is stoned to death. And Ahab and Jezebel get exactly what they want. In verse 16, it says, As soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose, went down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, and took possession of it. Ahab gets his way. He wins in the end, or so it appears at this part of the story. Naboth, the innocent man, is gone, and Ahab gets exactly what he wants. 
And then in verse 17, we find Elijah, our hero. Then the word of the Lord comes to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down, meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah as he shows up then at the vineyard, You have found me, O my enemy. And Elijah answers, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and of the house of Basha, the son of Asia. For the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Naboth stoned killed outside the city. Ahab takes possession of, of the land that was not rightfully his. And Elijah finally comes in and he gives this, this condemnation that comes from God as God speaks through Elijah. And he says to Ahab, enough is enough. You've taken this land that you weren't supposed to take and now there's going to be justice paid for the sins that you have, have had for years, really, but specifically for this sin of taking this land which was not yours. And so, I'm going to make you like these others that have been destroyed. And we're going to destroy you too. And the dogs that licked up Naboth's blood are going to lick up your blood. And your wife, she's going to be eaten by the dogs. One man has said, as they commentate on this passage, that, that from this point forward, Ahab, probably his heart rate always jumped when he heard dogs begin to bark. Because he knew the punishment that came from God. And he knew the promise that had come from God for this justice to happen. So Ahab and Jezebel, and, and if you read on in Second Kings, you'll, you'll see that, that exactly what God has, has set forth for Ahab and his family is in fact what happens. That God punishes them exactly the way that he describes. And so, we didn't, Elijah didn't come in just in time to save Naboth's life. Naboth is stoned, the, the, the land goes to Ahab, but Elijah comes in, and when he comes in, he comes in with full force. He comes in and he says, this is what God says. God says that, that you have done this, that you, you have broken his law, and he's tired of it, and he's gonna give you this punishment, and it's, and it's, it's ferocious, it's horrible. It's an unbelievably bad punishment. And, and I think as we read that, I think even as Elijah shares it with Ahab, I think we're relieved. In fact, we, we, we're a little bit glad. Finally, somebody's coming to Ahab and they're putting the bully in his place and they're giving him a lesson and they're teaching and God's justice is going to, to prevail. That his justice will be seen that Jezebel is going to be eaten by dogs and everything will come out okay in the end. And yet, as the story goes on, in verse 25, it says, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil on the side of the Lord like Ahab, and who was 
wife Jezebel incited. He acted very abominably, going after idols as the Amorites had done, and whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Ahab was a bad, bad guy and deserves every punishment that could ever be spoken to him. And then in verse 27, it says, When Ahab hears these words, he tears his clothes, he puts sackcloth on his flesh, he fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. He's not throwing a fit this time. He's not laying on his bed, kicking and screaming, sad that he's not getting what he wants. No. In fact, if you read on in verse 28, it says, The word of the Lord then comes to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring disaster upon his house. This is a turn. This is a turn that we don't expect. Ahab is a bully. He's been a bully from the beginning. He's a horrible, rotten leader. He's the worst king that Israel has in all of of their, their time. God gives a just punishment. He says, you're gonna, the dogs are gonna lick up your blood and your wife is gonna be eaten by dogs. And we cheer. Justice, finally. The bully is taken down. And when that word comes, Ahab hears it. And he hears the punishment that comes from God. And he humbles himself. And he has a moment of repentance. The truth is that we find that Ahab, his moment of repentance is not long. In fact, in fact, we would probably say that Ahab in the end is not truly repentant, but instead feels badly that he was caught. And you understand the difference, especially if you are a parent, you understand the difference when you come to your children and, and they, they are upset that they were caught doing wrong and they feel badly that they did wrong. There's a difference there. And you, and you understand that. You can see that. Ahab... Ahab feels badly, I think, that he was caught doing wrong. There's no heart change for him in the end. There's no, he makes no efforts at restoration. He, do, he doesn't make any efforts to give Naboth's family back the vineyard that they stole from him. He doesn't make any effort to make that reconciliation and that restoration with Naboth's family. But for this brief moment in time, for this small window, he humbles himself. And he repents. And because of that repentance, because of that small window of him humbling himself, God doesn't change the punishment. He doesn't, he doesn't take it away. He doesn't say, all right, well, we're not going to do that. No. It's still the same. In fact, as I mentioned, if you continue to read on, you'll see that, that what God promised as punishment is exactly what happened with Ahab and, and Jezebel. But for this moment... For this moment, God gives mercy. God gives grace to Ahab and to Jezebel in this moment. Now, how does all that relate to us this morning? We don't have a lot of time to talk about this. But how does that relate specifically to us, especially as we come to the table to share in communion? Let me just tell you a couple of things. Ahab, he is not... He is not the first man in the Bible who wants something that is not his. Ahab is not the first man in the Bible who longs for something that he can't have. 
Ahab is not the first man in the Bible who, who wants to take something that someone else tells him he can't take possession of. Ahab is not the first man in the Bible who sat by passively as his wife worked and chased after exactly what he wanted. Ahab is not the first man in the Bible to spoil an inheritance for all future generations. Ahab is not the first man in the Bible that does that. Instead, it's the first man in the Bible that does those things. Adam, Adam, the very first man created by God in the Garden of Eden when everything is right, he wants what's not his. He wants what he's told he can't have. He sits by passively as his wife chases after exactly what he was told he couldn't have. And when he eats the fruit that God told him not to eat, he spoils an inheritance for all of us. Because at that moment, sin enters into the world, not just in Adam, but in every single person. From that point on, we are all born with with an innate desire inside of us to want our own way, to want what we can't have, and to do everything we can to chase that selfish dream. Ahab is not the first one in the Bible to do it. All of these things were accomplished by Adam and in turn by me. We have a tendency when we read these stories to, to think about how um, Naboth is the good guy, Elijah is the good guy, and so that must be who I am in this story too. And the truth is, that's not who we are. We resonate with Ahab. His heart is our heart. The sins that he commits, though they look differently in our life, they are no less heinous. And the punishment that becomes for that sin is no less great for us. Ahab was not the first man in the Bible to do all of those things. But there's good news. Naboth, he's not the only man in the Bible. He's not the only innocent man in the Bible who faced trumped-up charges against him. He's not the only man who did what was right in the face of temptation and ensured an inheritance for his future family. Naboth is not the only man who was led silently before his accusers in a religious ruse of a trial. Naboth was not the only man in the Bible who was killed unjustly when he was doing exactly what was right under the law. Naboth is not the only man. There's another man, a second Adam, the Bible tells us, that comes and is led by his accusers to a trumped-up trial against men who tell false stories about him. And an innocent man, Jesus, is put to death. Now, Naboth was not perfect. Naboth was a man just like you and I. There was sin, I'm sure, in Naboth's life. All through probably his life, he had moments where he broke the law and broke God's plan for us. Naboth is not a perfect picture of Jesus. 
But Jesus was perfect. And Jesus does not deserve death, and yet he takes it. And when he does that, the sin that was passed on from Adam to us through Ahab, when Jesus takes that punishment, he makes a way for us to be reconciled and made right with God. Ahab, after he hears the punishment, repents. He humbles himself, he repents before God, and is shown grace and mercy. And the same is true for us this morning. We have the sin that was passed on from Adam through us and in us. And when we repent and humble ourselves before God, we receive grace and mercy. It's what this table represents for us here this morning. That God has made a way through his son to be reconciled and made right with him. And that's what we celebrate together here. There's an invitation that's in your bulletin. I want to read it to you this morning as we prepare to come. It says, For all who live in rebellion against God and unbelief, this holy food and drink will bring you only further condemnation. If you've not yet cast the full weight of your hope on the finished work of Jesus Christ and now seek to live under his gracious reign, we ask you this morning to abstain. Nevertheless, for those of you who have acknowledged your sin and affirmed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, this promise is sure. Whoever eats my body, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and will not come into condemnation. You're invited to the sacred meal this morning, not because you are worthy in yourself, but because you are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Do not allow the weakness of your faith or the failures in the Christian life to keep you from this table, for it's given to us because of our weakness and because of our failures in order to increase our faith by feeding us with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. As the Word has promised us God's favor, so also our Heavenly Father has added this confirmation of His unchangeable promise. So come, believer, for the table is ready. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We have opportunity this morning to celebrate that God has made a way for us through the death of an innocent man to be made right with him. That we do not receive the just punishment for our sin, but that Jesus took that upon himself so that we might receive grace and mercy as we repent before him and humble ourselves before him. So we celebrate that here at this table this morning. Some are going to come and help me to serve. We're going to serve it to you right there in your pew. If you are new with us this morning or visiting today, we want you to know that you are more than welcome. If you can live under this communion invitation to share in communion with us, we hope you will. We also want you to know that if you are not comfortable with that, you're welcome to let the elements pass by you. We don't want you to feel any pressure to be a part of this communion celebration with us this morning. But you are more than welcome and invited to, to take part if you can live under that invitation. I'd like those that are going to come and help me to serve to go ahead and come forward. And we're going to serve together this morning.
This represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd invite you to take it and to hold it, and then we will take it together this morning. This represents the body of a perfect man who took the just punishment that was should have been on me instead fell on him so that I might know grace. Take and eat and be grateful for that sacrifice. Again, we ask you to take it and hold it and we'll drink together this morning.
as I tempted and tried. Became flesh, born by sin and death. And now you're risen. Everything I once held dear, I counted all as loss. Lead me to the cross. Your love poured out Bring me to my knees Lord, I laid me down Rid me of myself I belong to you Lead me Lead me to, to the cross where your love poured out Bring me to my knees Lord, I lay me down Rid me of myself I belong to you Lead me Lead me to the represents the blood of Jesus. The Bible tells us that without blood, there can be no remission for sin. And that blood is not Naboth's blood. It's not Ahab or Jezebel's blood. It's Jesus. He makes the way for us to have forgiveness for sin. And so let's celebrate together in that this morning. God, we are grateful today that you have made a way for us while we were still dead in our sin and in our trespasses. You made us alive in Christ. We are grateful for that this morning. And pray that as we leave from here, that God, you will help us to rejoice in the perfect sacrifice that came to us through Jesus to take away all of our sin, the sin that came from the very beginning from Adam and Eve and passed on to us, that God, you have forgiven all sin through the blood of your Son. Help us to rejoice and celebrate in the hope that comes from our repentance that comes through Christ. So lead us in that this morning. We pray this in your name.